0: Hi, welcome to the Zone Podcast. Hi, I'm Liam Ford. And I'm Paolo Benetton. And this morning I had a real great pleasure to talk with Michael Stevens from B Lab. And you know, if you really want to know about diversity, and inclusion, and what it really means, how Michael's lived it, he's lived both sides of the coin. And his stories, it's a real human story with a real human touch. In it. It's going to touch your heart as it touched mine. So listen up, take a seat, put on the thinking cap and listen to Michael's story and how his passion about diversity and inclusion and allowing people to be themselves unfolded and put him where he is now. Enjoy. So, hi, Michael, and welcome to The Zone podcast, and uh, welcome to the show. How is it wherever you are at the moment? I'm not sure, even sure where you are and which part of the world.
1: Hi, Liam. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm in Auckland, um, in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. So, you're in lockdown. <laughs> We're in lockdown. Day 72 or something, I think, of lockdown.
0: Yes. Yeah, day 72. So. So I can see a whole lot of books behind you and, and we were chatting about a book that you were reading and it was it was really interesting. Do you want to sort of tell us a little bit more about that and what, what's the author and a little bit about the book because it's super cool?
1: Sure, yeah. The author is Edmund White, who's an author I really like, an American writer. Mm. And um, the book is one of his latest ones called Hotel de Dream. And he's imagining the last few weeks of the 19th century writer Stephen Crane's life as he's dying of tuberculosis. And, um, Crane's most famous for having written the red badge of courage. That's probably what people know him for the most. But right. he was a warm reporter and, um, so was his partner, a woman. They were, they worked together across um the, the Greek civil war and other, other wars in Europe and in the States and the South America. But Crane's dying of tuberculosis and he's remembering this encounter he had with a young male prostitute in New York only a few years earlier because Crane's still very young. He's only like 28, 29. You know, oh, see. Dying, And um he wants to write this uh, story about this young male prostitute, sort of in eighteen nineties New York, and everyone's saying, No, you can't. It'll ruin your reputation for one thing. Nobody will publish it for another. It's a disgusting topic. It shouldn't be talked about. And but he's lying there dying, and he um that's what he wants to do, and he's dictating the story to his partner, and she is reluctantly taking notes. But I still don't know whether she's going to Burn them, or what's going to happen to them by the end of the book? So I haven't got that far yet.
0: Oh wow! I mean, what an amazing topic, and it's like it, it's it's a little bit symbolic of a lot of how probably a lot of people are feeling today. Can they can they be real? Can they be their full self and express who they are and be okay with that? So
1: yeah, it does tie into that, and that ability to be ourselves is so important. If we want to have a happy and meaningful life. Mm. Um, We need to be in a place where we can um, be who we are. And that applies across all facets of life, including the workplace, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and that's sort of an area that you're working in. You're, in a way, supporting that, right? I mean.
1: Yeah. I'd say the last decade of my life has been in different ways, different um, areas focused on how you create workplaces that are not only inclusive but have a sense of belonging for the people coming in and that means you've got to have that for everyone and you've got to pay attention to all sorts of different groups within your workforce whether it's large or small to ensure that they do feel that they can be who they really are.
0: Mm. And when you achieve that what's the results? I mean you know when you have that sort of full inclusivity i mean what, what what happens is there some sort of magic or sparkle or you know i, I imagine it's, it's got to be pretty amazing
1: <laughs> i guess the magic is um, people want to come to work and they're happy to be there or to be happy or they're happy working from home and happy staff are generally more productive staff and give more to your business so there's a, a win-win side from that sheer cold hard capitalist Way of looking at things, you're going to have a more profitable outcome. But from that bigger picture, more personal side of things, isn't it great to make a world where people feel better and mm. know that they can actually be who they are without fear, without worrying that they're going to be penalised, without worrying it's going to impact on their work promotion opportunities and those sorts of things. So, whether you know, in my earlier work with when I set up the Rainbow Tech program. That was focused on people from the lesbian, gay, bi, trans, intersex communities and so on, and, and helping workplaces demonstrate that they were open to people from our communities being themselves. Because we know that a huge number of people who do come from rainbow communities choose to hide who they are in the workplace. And often that's because you know the workplace might be fine, but there's no visible way for people to know that. And so we're so used to hiding who we are, we just think, oh, I'll just turn my boyfriend's name into a girlfriend while I'm at work. And I won't tell anybody who I really am. And now I'm working more in the area of um, access needs and disability. And again, we meet people and they might be perhaps, they might have ADHD or they might have a vision impairment. And again, often people work to hide these things to potential employers or their current employers because Mm. they think they're going to be discriminated against. They think their chances are going to become more limited. and so. They spend time and energy pretending to be somebody else, which is not what you're paying people to do while they're in the workplace with you. But they're <laughs> focusing all this time and energy like, I've got to keep my front up, I've got to be this person I think I should be. Whereas often employers will go, we don't care if you are lesbian. You know The fact you've got a hearing impairment, we can work with that. You know, yeah. You've got ADHD, we've got solutions for that. Tell us and let's work together. So it's a matter mm. of putting up and making sure the signal an employer sends through to employees, to their staff, is really clear that, you know, we welcome you being who you are in this workplace. They're not going to judge you or discriminate against you because of it. In fact, we want you to be who you are.
0: Wow, that's a very different narrative than just ticking a box, isn't it? You know, it's very, very different.
1: It's not just ticking your books. Yeah. And these programs only work, in my experience, um, when you can see them clearly tied back to um, a company's publicly stated values. Mm. And I think, you know, typically values, um, you know, values are those. I remember the first time I saw a value statement, I was living in Istanbul and I was teaching English. This is in the 80s. And I went into um, an American company. I can't remember which one it was. And they had this value statement on the wall. I thought, what on earth is that? I've never seen such a thing before in my life. (laughs) And then I became quite cynical about them. But then as I started to work more um, with companies, and I I would meet people and they would say, well, these are our values. And I'd meet people on the factory floor who would say, well, these are our values. And I'd meet people in the C-suite who'd say, these are our values. Um, And everywhere in between. And so I came to realize that actually a public statement of values is very important. Mm. And so I would say that typically values, strategy is often guided by values, and then we go into operations. So if you are operating as an organization in line with your values, um, you're going to have a happy, healthy organization where people do know they can be themselves as much as they want to in the workplace yeah so
0: it's still their choice, but they have that freedom of self expression should they choose
1: yeah you know you're in a place where you can say as much or as little as you want to without penalty. doesn't mean you have to, mm. but you know you know that in this place i can yeah
0: yeah, so it's 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 that freedom of choice, huh, to be who yeah. you are.
1: And some people don't necessarily want that. They might think my work life is compartmentalised over here. I just want to go to work, do my job, and leave. I don't need to do any of the rest of this. But I think a lot of people actually really value the way modern workplaces are working around culture to make mm. culture so central and so important in creating a successful operation. Mm.
0: So tell us, Istanbul, I mean, how, <laughs> how did you get to Istanbul? <laughs>
1: I went there for a two-week holiday and stayed. (laughs) (laughs) Tell um, us more. I'd been living in um, the States, mainly in New York, and they wouldn't renew my visa since 1984, 85. And I went to London, which is where I'd always intended to. I thought I would end up for a few years. And I was in London, and it was Margaret Thatcher's London, it was very grey to me and depressing, especially after New York. And a friend said, go down to the Mediterranean, have a few weeks in Greece come back here, we'll get you a job, get you a flat, you'll settle down. And I was in Greece, and I was thinking, this is really nice, but it's not all that different. Then I remembered somebody had said to me, if you ever get the chance to go to Turkey, go. And I thought, it's just over there, I can just get a ferry. And um, I thought, I'll go have a week in Turkey. And then I came two weeks, and then I kept travelling further and further east. And I got all the way to the border um, at the east with Iran. And um, I just thought, this is just so different from anything or anywhere i've ever been in my life i loved it i turned around and went back to istanbul which is an utterly amazing city and um somebody as i was getting ready to go i was going to go in a few days someone said oh i know somebody looking for an english teacher are you interested and i ended up that's how I fell into English language teaching. As you could so easily in those days, and I was ended up at an aluminium aluminium um, factory run by one of the state banks in the mountains in the south of Turkey for six months, which was an interesting experience. And then um, came back to Istanbul and just stayed basically. Yeah.
0: How long did you stay in Istanbul altogether? What, what did you get up to after eight years? Wow! Eight years. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And the, did you learn the language, of course? Or yes, I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. So after it f- took a while, it's, it took me a good two two and a half years to become comfortable in it, But yes, I did.
0: Ah, what what can you what can you what's a message you can give us in in Turkish? That-
1: <laughs> oh, you shouldn't put me on the spot like that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even if it's hello,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what to say to that one. That's a bit of a yeah. Um. To switch gears that way, but yes, no. I one of the things when I left New Zealand for me, um, and I guess it's the recurrent theme for me is around culture. is I'd always want, I'd always had this idea. Well, not always. Since my late teens, I wanted to know if the things I believed to be true and held to be important were based on the fact that I grew up in, you know, a largely white middle class New Zealand, or whether they had any universal cultural applicability. And so Turkey for me in some ways was a great way to test that because it was such a completely different culture to anything I'd ever known. Um, and it, it challenged my ideas in, in a number of ways about things and made me made me more receptive to the world, less smug, less certain, um, more questioning. Yeah. Mm.
0: So that was like a, a transformative experience in a way.
1: It was a transformative experience there, yeah. Living deeply embedded in a different culture where, at the time I was there, most people didn't speak English, so um, I had to adjust to their culture, and I had to be—you know—I was the immigrant worker, so it was—it was—you know—being a teacher is still a respected position, but that's what I was, and I had to adjust to to living my life along their terms rather than on my terms as much. So yeah, I think and, it was, a, it was awesome. a transformative experience. Mm.
0: And how do you think that sort of pulled through into your into your life? I mean, how is that? really shaped your life because those sort of transformative experiences often shape shape our lives so how has that shaped your life and maybe taken you into a different direction than you thought of it's
1: a big question how has it shaped my life i feel like i always see things from two perspectives in some ways so when i came back to new zealand i felt like a complete foreigner in the way I expected things to be because I was so used to how things were in Turkey. So I, th- I think it's, I, I think what it did was give me a, a very different standpoint around a lot of things and uh, an appreciation for, for difference and also an appreciation for, for inclusion and, and part of my training and part of my work in life has been as a sociologist and I'm particularly fascinated by cultures. Mm. Um, and so being embedded in another culture and then coming back here and uh, then going on with my work life where I'm looking at organisational culture, internal, commercial cultures, um, I found also to be really fascinating. And I think it's given me a space, a way to stand back and see things at a slightly different angle to perhaps how other people do.
0: Yeah, so this so feeling, understanding that, that need and the feeling to be included and, and not judged is like a bit of a red thread that's pulled through from that experience.
1: Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's
0: amazing how these things shape these things shape us, huh?
1: It is. It really is. Yeah. I guess the other big thing that shaped me, in, in that sense too, is um, I've lived with HIV since I was in my late twenties, mm. It nearly killed me in the nineties. Um, wow. And um, so I've been, you know, I've been very close to death, and uh, again, it's it, that forced me to rethink some of those really fundamental questions around what is a good life, what do you want to do, how do, how do you lead a good life, wow, the people around you, and those sorts of things. So yeah, that's that's, and that is also feeds into, um, I guess, that idea of of um, around culture and around compassion and around inclusion,
0: yeah. So, how did that sort of near death? How did, it, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, how did how did that shape things for you then? I mean, how did it make you look at the world differently?
1: So, as I got particularly sick, I got very, very angry and bitter and depressed, and I was horrible to be around. And then I thought, I don't want to die like this. This is not a good way to die. So I focused on on creating a good death for myself, and that was a very conscious. Like, how do I create a good death? So I went into therapy. With um, a therapist who specialized in death and dying. She trained with um, Elizabeth Kugler Ross. And I um, took up a Buddhist meditation practice and I did um, academic study around sociology of death and dying. And I I was focused on, you know, just what, what are the things I need to do to make sure I die in a way that I think is a good way to die um, Mm. and leave the world a better place from that experience. And, and, And I wanted to move away from that angry, bitter, sick, depressed person that I'd become. And I—that was—I have to say it's been the the, getting ready to die has probably been the most engrossing and fulfilling project I've done in my life. But then Western science came along and um, kind of fixed everything in the mid '90s, and I didn't die. And then I had to reframe my life again. Think, well, I'm not going to die now. What do I do? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like. Damn! Another, <laughs> another, another plan's gone out the window. And what do we do next?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So, so, so then what happened? I mean, like then you had to go. Wow! So what? What do I do now? I was preparing for not being here. Now I'm going to be here. So,
1: yeah. So that's when I went back to university and I completed a master's in sociology. And I started. I was guest lecturing and lecturing and t- tutoring. And then. I took up, um, I started doing a PhD, but I realized after about a few years that, A, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a job in academia when you get a PhD. which is what I wanted. You know, there's absolutely no guarantee you'd get one in a location you wanted either. And it was costing me money and I was getting older. And I thought, um, you know, I'm probably going to be alive, you know, for roughly a normal lifespan and I don't want to be a poor middle-aged student anymore. So I need to get a job. And that was when um through another organization I started doing some work. Um and that NGO helped me establish the Rainbow Tech. And uh ah. that by me for about six, nearly seven years before um taking a break and then moving into B Lab, which is where I'm currently based.
0: Yeah. Uh, so so tell us a little bit about B Lab and, and you know, what sort of people do you want to uh connect with, you know?
1: We're really interested at B Lab in connecting with employers who are um, open to giving people an opportunity, so that mm. the we get candidates coming to us, and they might be living with neurodiversity, they might have ADHD, or um, they might be autistic, they might have uh, mental health conditions like um, anxiety or depression, schizophrenia. Some of them, they might have physical health conditions like uh, impaired vision, or um, they might have been born with a congenital. Condition that affects how they move, or something like that. Mm. What they find often is doors shut in their face. So even if they've been through university, um, or even if they've got experience, or even if they're really willing and they just want an opportunity, people will often just look at them, or they'll hear who they are, and they they won't give them the opportunity. So we want to find employers who are willing to say, "Yeah, I'll give you a chance. Um, I'll take you on." And uh, I guess the the bait that we can offer the employer. Is um, we have contracts with the Ministry for Social Development, and they will pay their full salary for these people for three to four months, depending on the program, to help them gain some meaningful work experience. And this is to help help bolster their future um, employability the opportunities. Hmm. I was going to say about one in four people in New Zealand live with some kind of disability or access need, um,
0: hmm.
1: and that's a high proportion. and most of us as we get older we too will live with something something will come along in our lives so whether it's our sight or our hearing whatever we will have an access need or disability of some form or other as well so it's a huge untapped pool of potential talent that's sitting out there around 65 percent of people with disabilities or access needs are either unemployed or underemployed their skills aren't being utilized so we want to lift this population and give this population the opportunities to have better lives and to be included and to be able to be who they are in a full and meaningful way. Mm, that's
0: amazing. So you're looking for employers that have a, have a kind heart and want to open that to different people with different needs.
1: Yeah, we're looking for employees who talk about being inclusive and, and saying, here's a piece of inclusion you may not have thought about. You might have focused on gender equity. You might have focused on ethnicity. You might have focused on variations of sexuality or um, gender expression. Have you thought about, you know, disability, hidden or or visible? Is that an area that you've put any focus in? Because these people um, are as real as everybody else, and they also need to be included in this mix. So if you're trying to be a truly inclusive employer and to build a culture that is strong and um, welcoming, Um, then this is another aspect that you need to focus
0: on. fantastic. And so how do people get in touch with you, Michael? How how do we get in touch with B-Lab and get in touch with you?
1: The easiest way is just to go straight to our website, www.blab.com. I'm just trying to think. Is it .com or .co.nz? I'll double check.
0: It's it's Um, (laughs) .co.nz. I was up and on the website. (laughs)
1: Yes. The easiest way to get in touch is to go to our website, www.blab.co.nz. And that's where you can contact us and learn more about our programs. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from people.
0: Maybe maybe you're trying to create blab.com because you want to make this international, huh?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, yes. It's it's great.
0: Maybe maybe that's the next iteration of (laughs) blab.co.nz,
1: Yeah,
0: (laughs) why not? Why not? Hey, it's been a a really great pleasure chatting to you, Michael, and thanks for bearing with me while we had a little technical difficulty at the beginning. And, you know, really look forward to talking to you again. And I hope the listeners really find a way to, as you say, reach out and and be more inclusive.
1: Great. Liam, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great to be here.
0: Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Ciao for now. Ciao for now. Well, I'm left with Paola with with such a deep sense of connection to Michael's story, and how that chance holiday in Istanbul really, you know, just um, triggered a whole new life and a whole new way of looking at the world, and with such beauty. And you know, to make sure that when we're when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that we we give people welcome signs, no matter where they are in life and what's happening for them, and what, how they show up to make them welcome. And that was just such a such a beautiful message. And how he approached his terminal illness was just mind blowing. And how he didn't he decided, I'm not going to leave this world bitter and twisted. And then, amazingly, through science, you know that was turned around, and now he's able to leave that that same message, that love. Uh, that he has for humanity to allow us at the rest of the world to learn something and and take that forward. Uh, Amazing story. Yeah, and he's making a, a real difference to diversity and inclusion in New Zealand. So if you're an employer, you know, looking to create an inclusive workplace and willing to give people with disabilities or access needs a chance and create an environment where they can flourish, take a look at vlab.co.newzealand and really get in touch with michael yeah and just what a gift you can give someone Mm. and if you want to get in touch with us you know where to find us at www.thezone.co thanks everybody for listening thank you paula and ciao for now ciao for now